amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, hey, hey. Hi. Did it again. I don't I don't like when I do that, but my somehow you always do it. Yeah, my brain says, don't you do it. And my mouth says, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> so that's where I am with living with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. So I wonder, has anybody ever heard of this person before? Yeah. Or is we anybody were, familiar with the case? We were just talking about that. You can't can't find a whole hell of a lot on it. Mm-mm. No, so you This cannot. is one of those uh, obscure as far as... Probably not as many people know about it cases. Sure. Sure. But I yeah. mean, we do. Well, wait, do we have some business to do? Do you want to do trigger warnings first? What are we doing here? Mm, okay. Um, let's do the description. Yes. Trigger warnings. And then we'll do our business. Okay. Like, it sounds like we're taking a dog out. <laughs> and do our business. We're going to do our business. Yes. You want to make on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, in the 1980s, two small towns in California were shocked when two 12-year-old boys were brutally murdered. No physical evidence had been left at the scene of the crime, and nobody knew who would want to hurt these two boys. With the help of witnesses and a sketch artist, investigators were able to connect their deaths to the disappearance of a 15-year-old boy. The suspect in question was John Dunkel. Despite the ease of connecting the three crimes and identifying Dunkel as a likely suspect in all three cases, Dunkel was unlike any other criminal the investigators had ever dealt with before. It would be years before detectives were able to finally arrest 26-year-old Dunkel, who had been referred to as the Peninsula mm-hmm, as the Peninsula serial killer. There it is. That was so it was going so good and then at the very end. But, yeah. But that's that's a tough word. Well, Peninsula serial. Yeah, killer. That was a little wordy, but that's what he was called. Yeah. And the trigger warnings are child murder, mutilated bodies, drug use, and alcohol use. Yes. So now is your time to decide if this is something that you want to proceed with. Sure. And we also do just want to let you know if you want more episodes, like lots and lots and lots of more episodes, mm-hmm. you should uh, check out our Patreon. Yeah. We do... Guys, four episodes a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, holy moly. Yeah, absolutely. And everything is ad-free. And yes. I mean, if you need more content, that's the place to be. It's totally the place to be. Mm-hmm. And tonight is actually 
our very last Spotify green room. That is so crazy. The time has come. So if you guys want to check it out, um, we are doing Lorena Bobbitt tonight. So an infamous 90s case. If you want to come gal pal with us live about it. Did I say about it? You already said about it, I think. Dang. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I didn't say about it. And that sentence is really weird now. Um, just kidding. So now I said about it twice. If you want to come and gal pal with us about it, about it, about it, then you need to join us. It's uh, search True Crime Rewind on Spotify Green Room or on Spotify. You can listen to old episodes. You can come hang with us for this episode. We've got a chat that is um, lit. Yeah. 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 And that's 8 p.m. Central Time. Yeah. We'll see you there. Yay. Yay. It's our going away party. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Oh, and before we get started, thank you to Madison for writing up this script. Yay. Thank you. Yay. Okay. So we're going to talk about John Davies first. John Davies was 15 years old when his mother, Joan, dropped him off at the San Mateo Public Library on Saturday, November 7th, 1981. I got out of breath. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think there's any getting around that. Oof. That was an embarrassment, wasn't it? I'm sitting still. <laughs> um, it was just after 11 a.m. in San Mateo, California, and Joan was in a hurry this morning. She was a program director for a high school and was heading to monitor a swim meet. Just four years earlier, the Davies family, including Joan, her husband Jim, John, and his two older brothers, Jimmy and Mark. Where did Mark come from? I don't know. Joan, John, Jim, Jimmy, Mark. Wow. Moved from Chicago to Belmont, California. Jim had quit his job in the corporate world and was opening his own one-hour photo business. Oh, that's memories. (laughs) My gosh. And one-hour photo was a big damn deal. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Because then you didn't have to wait a week to get your pictures back. Right. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. But he was also renovating Victorian homes. The oldest Davies child, Jimmy, was starting to make a name for himself in the Navy. Mark, who was about two years older than John, attended Sarah High School with his brother. John had a tough time in school. He was bullied. He was called names. He had a pretty hard time fitting in. He started following Mark around and trying to find his place. He became friends with other students who played Dungeons and Dragons and experimented with smoking pot, cigarettes, and drinking alcohol. On weekends, Mark would often bring his little brother with him to neighborhood parties so that he could hang out with older kids. John, who had been a pretty good student before transferring to Sarah High School a few months earlier, let his grades fall. I mean, he's he's really focused on this social life. Mm-hmm. Like, at the expense of all else, right? Yes. Like, well, awesome. and I mean, he had a little bit of a hard time, you know? Yeah. So I can understand him. I, I don't think that it he should have let his grades fall. I mean, that's important, but... I can understand wanting to find where you fit in. Yeah, moving at that age is so hard. How would you know? I don't. But I, yeah, yeah, I assume moving at that age is so hard. Yeah, we like Like, never ever moved. (laughs) I know. I'm like, I'm super. It like keeps me up at night thinking about moving Ben for first grade from where he's at at kindergarten. Well, and I was going to say, I mean, we did move. When we were, I was in the seventh grade. You were in the ninth grade. We did move schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we so. were in the same house, but we just moved schools. Yeah. Yeah. And then right when we started to make friends, we uh, were moved back, but we're not better. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's got to, that's just got to be really tough. Like I completely get it. Definitely. 
Joan told her son how disappointed she was that he was neglecting his schoolwork and John had promised to do better. That day, John was planning on working on two history papers, then heading to visit his best friend, Larry. What a 80s kid name. <laughs> Larry. <laughs> because everybody we know that's named Larry is like older, like in their 50s now. <laughs> that's funny. John told his mother that he liked living in California despite having some trouble at school. He liked his new friends and he loved helping his dad with house restorations. Though the youngest Davies boys partied a little too much, the Davies family seemed to have settled in well to their new home. Around 5.30 p.m. that night, Jim came home to find John and Mark in the kitchen before leaving to meet his wife at a dinner party. Mark and two of his friends went up to his room to hang out. The boys usually polished off a few six-packs of beer, but Mark had taken John to a big party last night and was still recovering. <laughs> I mean, I like we did not have the balls to do this kind of stuff at home. No. We didn't have the balls to do this kind of stuff at all until we were like over 18. But. I know. <laughs> like, I'm just shocked that this was high school and that it was just kind of common and normal and everybody knew about it. Yeah. I'm like, uh, that, we're not allowed to do that. I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. So John, like he often did, tried coming into Mark's room to hang out, but Mark was not having it this night. He told him to leave, and after a small tussle, John ran upstairs to his own room crying. Later that evening, Mark went into his brother's room and saw that he'd cleaned it up, and he told him that he looked that the room looked great, and John was like, I'm sorry, is somebody speaking? <laughs> I don't I'm hear anybody. Not listening. Nope. Around eleven PM, Mark fell asleep, so John walked his friends home. Afterwards, he came back to his house and watched a movie with Carlos. At 12.30 a.m., the two boys went to bed. Carlos remembered seeing John shut his bedroom door behind him and heard his tape deck start playing. And around 1.30 a.m., John and J- nope, Joan and Jim arrived home. My God. It's hard. There's, a, There's so many J's. So many J's, and they're kind of close sounding. Yeah, yeah. John and Joan, that's close. Yeah. The next morning, Joan awoke to find the front door open. She figured that Mark had snuck out and then snuck back in and forgot to shut the door and lock it. That's just like, again, it's just so wild to me. Like, she's like, ah, they snuck out again, whatever. Right. Like, <laughs> I wonder, was she mad about it? Or I was know. she like, like oh, she typical like, John or Mark or yeah, whoever? Yeah. Didn't shut the door back. Yeah. yeah. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So she went to wake the boys up for church at 9 a.m., but she couldn't find John anywhere. She noticed that though her 15-year-old was gone, his new jacket, shoes, and his money were still in his room. And John would never even go past the driveway without these shoes. Joan was pretty concerned, but Jim and Mark didn't think it was that big of a deal. Mark said he'd gone to bed early. He didn't know anything about John sneaking out, but he assumed his brother was just probably trying to ditch church, even though Joan had found where John had laid out his church clothes for that morning. But even still, he was just like, hey, he probably decided he didn't want to go, right? Jim said they'd probably find John at home after church nursing a hangover. Again, that's just again. Okay. Yeah. Probably. I mean, he's probably just going to be, be surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. The family left for the morning service at Belmont Baptist. And when they returned, John still wasn't home. So Jim called the police in hopes of starting an investigation while the rest of the family tried to think of places John might have been. They called neighbors, every friend of John's that they could think of, but nobody had seen him. Mark, unbeknownst to his parents, went into John's room and checked a secret hiding spot that he and John had for drugs. This terrifies me. I know. You don't (laughs) need to be reading this stuff. I know. Like, I'm like, everything that my children have in their room, I'm going to pull apart to see if there's drugs in them. Like, (laughs) because they hid tabs of LSD in a decorative wine bottle. There was like a small film canister inside. And so they would keep their LSD in there. But Mark knew that there should have been LSD in it. But when he opened it, all of it was gone. And now he's super, super worried because John had taken LSD for the first time the week before that. And when he did, he couldn't recognize his surroundings. He didn't recognize his brother. So Mark was like, okay, John was super mad at me last night. He took all this LSD and he left, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe he doesn't know where he is or maybe something happened. Absolutely. The following day, a detective from Belmont PD arrived at the Davies home. It turned out that no one had even taken a report on John's disappearance when Jim called the day before that. Perfect. We love to hear that. Thank you so much, police. I'm so glad I called. Yeah, thanks for wasting everyone's time. And of course, what are they going to do? They're like, meh, he's a runaway, whatever. And the Davies were like, he would not have run away. Before the detective left, too, Mark pulled him aside and told him about the missing LSD. And he was like, really concerned that John had had a bad trip. He was lost somewhere. He was hurt somewhere. Mm -hmm. The detective took down all the information. He took it back to the station where he learned later in the week that the Davies had already been circulating missing posters with John's information. And uh, they have to. I mean, Mm -hmm. they have to do all the work. Y'all aren't doing anything. Yep. People started reporting sightings of John in nearby cities. The police never confirmed and not that not that they didn't confirm them because they did the legwork. They just didn't even try to confirm any of the sightings. Based on these reports, you know, they just said, well, somebody called and said he was seen in another city, so he's fine. Right. It's and like also, the he's taken drugs before. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Milberg twins. Well, somebody said so, so fine. Yeah. Yeah. They just decided that because he'd taken drugs before, because he had like, you know, he was a rebellious teenager, because people said they saw him in other places. He was a runaway and there's no investigation needed. Mm -hmm. Joan and Jim told the detective they thought John could have left that evening with a friend of the family. 
21-year-old John Dunkel. Oh, this is so frustrating. This is so frustrating. They said that they had no doubt that if Dunkel asked, John would have left in the middle of the night with him. He would have gone anywhere. Both he and Mark partied often with Dunkel, and he was very close to Joan and Jim. Despite the police saying that they cleared Dunkel, both Joan and Jim continued to tell people, when our son disappeared from our lives, so did John Dunkel. Yep. And that is a red flag. Mm-hmm. Who do you know that maybe quit their job out of nowhere, who sold a vehicle out of nowhere, who up and moved out of nowhere? Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and what are the things you look for? They don't, they, okay, well, he ran away. Oh, well, who cares? Yeah. So now we have to talk about Lance Turner. 12-year-old Lance Turner had been dropped off at the Ralston Intermediate School soccer fields at 4 p.m. on Tuesday, October 2nd, 1984. Lance carpooled with three of his friends, Ian, Thomas, and Mark. Oh my gosh, I'm thinking Thomas, Ian, Nicholas. (laughs) Remember him? He was in A Kid in King Arthur's Court. No? No, why am I forgetting who this is? He was also in American Pie, but okay. Was he like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yep, 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 yes, okay. Oh, I loved him, yes. Yes, we loved him. He was in like all the bot magazines. I was like, I feel like you're talking about somebody that I was in love with, but I can't think... Of who he, yeah, oh yeah, big time, yeah. loved him. Yeah, still do, honestly. So Ian, Thomas, and Mark were all on the same team as Lance, and Ian's father, Tim, dropped the boys off. Their soccer practice didn't start until 5 p.m., but Tim coached a younger team that had an earlier practice. So the four boys had, had absolutely no problem filling that empty hour. They had grown up with each other in Belmont and loved playing sports and Dungeons and & Dragons, and Lance was considered an especially handsome seventh grader. He had blonde hair, he had blue eyes, and Lance was popular, even with the eighth grade girls. Wow. It's just, I've never known what that would have been like, but his older (laughs) sister, Tracy, would tell her friends that despite Lance only being 12, he was a, quote, stud, and girls called the house for him often. Wow. (laughs) Like, I'm thinking of somebody that was in my grade that would have been this person. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, we all were like, Took turns trying to call him and then we chickened out. <laughs> well, one time he called me and mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God. But when I called him back, he was asking for instructions on the homework we had that night. <laughs> well, I remember there was one kid in my grade too. And one of the eighth graders, because in when we were in the sixth grade, he dated a girl that was in the eighth grade. Wow. That you know. But anyway, so... His parents, Margot and Quincy, thought of Lance as a happy and confident child who was growing into a thoughtful and smart teenager. And on the day of their practice, Tim left the boys on the fields while he went to coach his team. The Ralston campus backed up to the Water Dog Lake Recreation Area. I hate Water Dog Lake. I hate it. <laughs> Water Dog. <laughs> I like. don't like it. It seems like a... Sounds like the name of a beer or something. Yeah. I just don't like it. I think it's stupid. But anyway, so. There were many trails and picnic areas as well as the lake itself, and teenagers hung out in the woods and on trails often, many of them using the secluded area to drink, smoke, or to hook up. A lot of drinking and smoking in high school. Hooking up. It's just, wow. very young people, yeah. I I think we were just too goody two-shoes to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm like, what is with all these children drinking and smoking? (laughs) This is crazy, but it's like normal. Okay. It was a large area, but the boys were familiar with it. So Lance told his friends that he was bored and he suggested that they go down to the rope swing near the lake. But his friends said that they didn't want to go, that it was a little bit cooler out that day. And Mark said that it would be cold by the water. Lance told them 
that he would just go alone. His friend saw him run down towards the wooded area until he passed the quote-unquote smoking tree and into the woods. At 4.50 p.m., the coach for Belmont Oaks Soccer League, Ray Williamson, gathered the boys between ages 10 and 16, and they started practice. Lance's friends grabbed their soccer bags and noticed that the number 10 bag was left on the bench. Unsure of who the number 10 was, they grabbed the bag and hurried over to their practice. At 6 p.m., Thomas's father, Bill, pulled up at the practice field, and Thomas, Ian, (laughs) (laughs) Thomas, Ian, and Mark ran to the car to be driven home. Bill asked where Lance was. He was part of their carpool and he normally gave him a ride home. And the boy boy said they didn't know where he was, but Bill asked them to go look for Lance. The three boys ran down the trail to the rope swing and back, but they didn't see him. When they got back to Bill, they told him they couldn't find him. Bill asked coach if Lance had been at practice and the coach said he hadn't seen him either. Both coach and Bill agreed that it was super strange for Lance to miss practice and his mom not call and let someone know. I mean, he's 12. Yeah. I mean, and we've talked about this before, but like he doesn't get the opportunity to. Yeah, that. Okay. (laughs) Yes. That is so frustrating to me because even with John Davies, he's 15 and they're like, well, he's a runaway. He is not allowed to run away. So you need to look for him. Yeah. He's not allowed to do that. Right. Like, let's just say that he did. He didn't. But let's just say that he did. Yeah. You still got to look for him because he's not supposed to fucking do that. Exactly. Yep. Like, it's not safe for a 15 year old to be living on the street, even if that's their choice. Like, it's not safe. Mm -mm. Not at all. So Coach and another adult went down the trail to the rope swing, but they couldn't find him either. And it started to get dark out and the adults were worried. Margot Turner was contacted and told that her son was missing. Around 7.15 p.m. that evening, a Belmont police officer arrived at the Turner home. Margot was scared that Lance had fallen from the rope swing and was possibly hurt somewhere. Her husband, Quincy, was down at the field searching for his son. While the officer headed to the fields to help search, Coach had gathered some fathers and older players to search the wooded area. He had divided the area into a grid and split the volunteers into search crews. Lance's friend, Thomas, his father, Bill, and Quincy went down the trail that Thomas said Lance took to the rope swing. They used their flashlights to light up the trail and look off to the sides and about 25 feet off of the path, Bill's flashlight caught something. He thought it was a tennis shoe, but as he got closer, he recognized that there were legs and feet. Mm. He kneeled down closer and shined his light through a tunnel of brush, and he saw Lance laying on his back and touched his leg. And when he did that, Bill knew that he was dead. He heard Quincy asking him what he was doing, and Bill quickly stood up and told Quincy that his son was dead. Mm. So sad. Seventh grade. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're not finished Mm-mm, with victim mm-mm. stories. So now we're going to talk about 12-year-old Sean Danell. Is that how you feel like it's pronounced? I don't know. Okay. Daniel? I don't know. Yeah. So we're not totally sure, but I'm going to go with Danell. Okay. Okay. On July 2nd, 1985, Sean had set out on his bicycle to ride across the old Fair Oaks footbridge to Rancho Cordova. And Sean is 12 at this point. Yes. The route would take him about two miles down a bike trail and through a residential area to where some of Sean's friends lived. His mother, Ellen, had given him permission to go visit his friends as long as he was back before dark. And she felt really confident he would be back before dark because he was scared of the dark. So she was like, I, you know, he's going to get back well before that, right? Mm -hmm. He's not going to chance it. Sean hadn't been in Fair Oaks for very long. His parents were divorced, and he used to live with his mother and her boyfriend, Kip, in Rancho Cordova. 
About two years earlier, Sean had left to go live with his father, Guy, and his wife, Debbie, in the foothills of Sierra Nevada Mountains, the Sierra Nevada Mountains. <laughs> Guy, Debbie, and their new baby were taking a vacation to Tahoe and wanted Sean to join, but he wanted to go visit his mom since he didn't get to see her very often. Sean was a very active kid. He loved playing soccer, baseball, basketball, and could often be found swimming or on his bike. He loved to be adventurous and had even just broken his arm after falling from a rope swing at camp. Active kid. Yeah, very. He had a cast on his left arm that prevented him from pitching in his Little League All-Star game. And he was the top pitcher for his team. You know, that bumped him out. Yeah. Yeah. At about 7.30 p.m., Sean got back on his bike and headed home. At 8.30 p.m., Ellen starts to get worried. Sean still wasn't home and it was starting to get dark. So she asked a neighbor for help and began walking towards the trail that her son would have taken. She saw a crowd of people near a brush fire and figured Sean must have just gotten sidetracked watching the fire, which is like so something a kid would do. I don't know. Honestly, I probably would do it. I would do it too. Fire is mesmerizing. (laughs) It really is. It's just like, you know, and you know, she saw that and was like, oh, thank God. This is why he's held up, you know? Exactly, yeah. But she goes over to see if he's in the crowd. He's not there. So she keeps looking around, but she can't find him. Around 10 p.m., Ellen made sure that Kip was by the phone in case Sean called. She went to walk a bike trail, but returned without her son. Around midnight, Kip got on a bike and took a flashlight to the trail to look for Sean while Ellen called the police. Two hours later, an officer came by the residence and said, hey, um, remember how we can't do anything because he hasn't been missing for 24 hours? <sighs> so we're just definitely not going to do anything. We wanted to come by and tell you that we can't help you at all, but thank you so much for calling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, We called to say we can't talk right now. So the police (laughs) also discovered that the year before that, they had arrested both Ellen and Kip for possession of drug paraphernalia. Sean wasn't with them when it happened, but police were like, oh God, this makes perfect sense. He came to visit his mom because he loves her and misses her. But because last year they got arrested for drug paraphernalia, That was his reason, and now he ran away, so, like, we don't even need to look for him because he's 12 and he's fine, right? (laughs) He's got a bike. How would they make that kind of connection that is so ridiculously stupid? Again, it doesn't matter what your reason is for running away. Not supposed to do it. So if a child is running away, you need to find them, and you need to make sure they're safe, and you also need to make sure that their home is safe to come back to. But either way, there's something going on. Either they're running away and they're not supposed to, and they need to come back home because that's where they're safe, or they're running away because home isn't safe, and you need to figure that out. Right. And let's be clear, too, and I'm not saying that because, I mean, I think it's very important to not break the law. I think that that is important. But we flash forward, fast forward, 30 years, 20, 40 years, and if it was, let's say, for smoking pot, having a bong, whatever, you fast forward 40 years, it's now legal. So, Uh you know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. Okay. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Ellen, Kip, and friends spent the next several days getting flyers made and showing them around the trails and nearby popular areas. The media hadn't given his disappearance any attention yet because of the recent discoveries of multiple murder victims of Charles Ng and Leonard Lake. Fuck those guys. Oh my gosh, which we did cover in a two-part. I don't remember the episode numbers, but if you want that whole story and you want to throw some more shit out the window, (laughs) go check it out. Yep. Finally, on July 4th, Sean's disappearance was covered on the news. A friend of Sean's father saw the newscast and called Ellen to find out how to get in touch with him. It's very interesting that Ellen didn't bother to call him. Yeah. Like, hey, our son is missing. Like, I get that we're not married anymore, but like. Well, right. I mean, but this is significant. This is days later. This is Mm -hmm. not like, oh, I, you know, I've lost track of him at the grocery store. There's maybe no reason to to call for that. Yeah, he was supposed to be home at eight, but it's nine. He's not home yet. Like, okay, fine. But yeah, this is days later. You've already involved the police. You're making flyers looking for him. Yeah. But I don't know. He finally finds out about it. And Guy is like, eh, you know, Sean is smart. He is resourceful. He's street smart. He can hang on his own. Yeah, he's not. I'm not that worried about him. He considered Ellen to be a bit of a mess. Which, 
I'm going to agree with here. And Guy's wife thought it might be possible that Sean wanted to leave the environment. So, I mean, I don't know. You know, like the police really don't have enough information to go on for that. Obviously, Guy and his wife are going to have a little more context to everything. But still, Guy was like, no, Sean's not going to run away. Like, I don't care who says he would. I don't care what's gone on. He's not going to run away. But the police, of course, didn't believe him. Right. The searches for Sean continued throughout the trails and area where he'd last traveled. On July 8th, six days after Sean went missing, two bikers were riding on the trail around 7.45 p.m. One of the men noticed a blue bicycle about 40 feet off the trail, partially covered by brush. No. I know. He ventured down into the brush and saw that it was a boy's bike. Through the low-hanging trees, the man looked further and saw the outline of a person about 20 feet away. He could see two bare legs, and as he got closer, he smelled a terrible odor and knew what he'd just found. So the men called the police, who quickly declared the area a crime scene. When investigators crawled through the bushes and approached the body, they initially believed it to be a young black male due to the coloring, and they thought he was asleep until they touched him and realized that this is absolutely a deceased person. The body had a cast on the left arm, but initially... They're thinking that we found a young black male, so they're not connecting it to the disappearance of Sean. They asked for a coroner to be called to the scene to examine the body and get a little more information, you know, to be sure that what they were thinking was correct. But the coroner determined that the body could be that of a white male that had suffered discoloration due to the elements. And it did end up being the body of Sean Donnell. That's so sad. The Davies family felt that police had let the disappearance of their son, John, fall out of focus, which they absolutely did because they Mm -hmm. didn't really care that much to begin with. But Jim and Joan did everything they could to bring attention to their son and keep his disappearance from being forgotten. They still couldn't understand how police had cleared John Dunkel. At one time, Dunkel had been a part of their family. One day at church, four years earlier, the oldest Davies son, Jimmy, introduced his parents to a classmate of his, which was John Dunkel. Joan thought that John seemed shy but sweet and perhaps needed a little bit of parental, almost a prenatal, parental <laughs> care and love. Is he taking his prenatal? I hope so. And folic acid is important for everybody, right? Well, I mean, I would think, I don't know. It's good for your skin and your hair and your nails. Sure it is. Sure it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. She immediately invited him over for Sunday dinner at the Davies' home. And after this dinner, Dunkel's visits became more frequent. He told the Davies stories of his childhood, explaining that his problems with learning started when his brother pushed him out of a window as a toddler. He told them that he was a police informant. He often talked about abuse and problems in his family. And Joan and Jim didn't challenge Dunkel's crazy stories. They seemed harmless, but... They even let him sleep over when he came to the house one night when Jimmy or with Jimmy and they were both very, very intoxicated. And he told them that his dad would beat him if he saw him like that. Hmm. Dunkel became part of the family. He even called Jim and Joan mom and dad. And he came into the house, didn't even bother to knock. He was just walking right in. He had pretty severe dyslexia and had difficult, a difficult time writing and reading. And Dunkel's school problems weren't just with schoolwork. He also had a really rough social life. Most people considered him to be a really odd guy. He was bullied at school. He was extremely socially awkward. Jimmy said that he befriended him out of pity and he wanted to get him out of the house and teach him how to be a teenager. So he took him to parties where Dunkel was a lightweight with alcohol. He would get extremely drunk and very giggly. And unfortunately, that made people just bully him even more. 
after Jamie graduated and moved out, Dunkel, who was then 20 years old, became friends with Mark and John. And the boys put up with Dunkel because he could buy them alcohol. With Dunkel's heavy alcohol use and affinity for driving drunk, it was not long before he got a DUI. And Mark was actually in the passenger seat when he got it. John absolutely forbid her boys from riding anywhere with Dunkel. So they would sit in his new white Honda Civic in the driveway and they would listen to the sound system. Dunkel's extravagant stories continued. He got a job working for airport security or he got a job working airport security. And he said that he was supposed to be watching for a serial killer that was flying in. Okay. Uh, Yeah. He then said that he had a Christian awakening while he was at work and he left the job. In May of 1981, Dunkel left for a Youth for Christ training camp in Oregon. And then four months later, he unexpectedly showed back up to the Davies home and told them that he'd quit because they made him work too hard. That doesn't sound like an extravagant story. It does sound real, but the working too hard thing and him not wanting to do that. But So Mark continued to party with Dunkel occasionally, but he really just got tired of his immaturity and weird affect. And Dunkel started hanging out with John because he was kind of the only one that would hang out with him. But John was only 15 and John felt important and cool to hang out with a 22-year-old. Of course. Yeah. And it wasn't long after Dunkel and John began hanging out by themselves that John disappeared. The Belmont police spoke to Dunkel, who had just started a new job at Toys R Us. Ugh. Dude, first the one hour photo and now it's Toys R Us. It's like, <sighs> miss it every day. I was so excited once I had kids. I was like, so we can go to Toys R Us again. But then they shut it down. Don't even get me started on KB Toys. Mm. Right? Mm. I know. And, you know, I mean, Target's fine, but it's like, it's not even a whole store dedicated to toys. No. And it's just, yeah, it's just not the same. It's not the same. No. And while we're at it, I want to add the Sears... Christmas time oh. catalog back to the list of things that I want to bring back. The best. Mm-hmm. I mean, Amazon came out with theirs, but you know. It's not the same. And also try finding what Amazon puts in the catalog on the actual website. You can search the exact thing and it's not there. What is happening, Amazon? Yeah, I can't. I, can I know they're you. listening. Sure. Yeah, I know they are too. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you finally got that off your chest and you put it right into Amazon's little ears. So exactly. Yes. Amazon, I, I didn't want to have to do that, but you forced you forced my hand. Dunkel started this new job at Toys R Us, right? Love it. He's hanging out with Jeffrey every day. He said that he'd last been to the Davies home on the 4th or the 5th to take Mark out, and he started the new job on the 9th. And this was two days after John was last seen. He told police he had no clue where John might be, but he wanted to help in any way that he could. Sure. So though they couldn't get Dunkel out of their head, Jim and Joan tried to accept that the police had appropriately cleared him of being involved in their son's disappearance. And that's your first mistake, isn't it? Assuming that these police actually did their job. Uh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, and like no fault of the parents, of course, but like you're supposed to be able to accept that the police appropriately cleared somebody. Yeah. The murder of Lance Turner didn't seem to be connected to any other attacks in the area. Luckily, there'd been quite a few people in the area on the trail that had seen Lance and may have seen his killer. Belmont police set about accounting for all the people who'd been seen around the Tori's mm. favorite water dog lake I think area. That's stupid. I'm sorry. This might be stupid, but it's a water dog. <laughs> like a lab? Yeah, like there's lots of dogs that like water, but like water dog lake. I don't know. It's just, yeah. But they wanted to start trying to find the people who may have been 
around the lake at the time. So we might have seen Lance last. Yeah. Yeah. Slowly, these unidentified people came forward. Now, again, this is three years later. <laughs> so cool idea, police. Yeah. Like, do that in the very beginning. Yeah, because what are the odds of people actually remembering super detailed information about something, like a random day to them three years ago? Exactly, because by that point, you're like, you'll start to, like your memories will start to merge and you'll be like, oh, the day we went to the lake, we also went to Pizza Hut or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, And in reality, that was two separate days. Maybe went to Pizza Hut the week before. Yeah, exactly. Like, so frustrating. Mm Mm-hmm. The only person who hadn't been identified had been seen by two groups of people. The first was two young boys. They'd gone to the smoking tree, and one of the boys began to urinate on the tree, because why not? Those boys too. (laughs) Yeah, suddenly someone yelled at them to get lost. They saw a guy sitting on a tree branch. He had light, greasy, shoulder-length hair and braces, and the two boys ran off. Like, this is an old man. He's like, get out of here! (laughs) Sounds like an old man. Get lost. Yeah, scram. Get lost. Scram. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. A few minutes later, four eighth grade girls skipping volleyball practice went down to the smoking tree to dig out a pack of hidden cigarettes and a matchbook. These are gutsy kids. Yes, they are. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. So the girls looked up. They see this guy sitting on a tree branch. They estimated that he was between 16 and 19 years old. He offered them some sips from his beer can, and they shared a cigarette with him. None of them could remember his name, but they believed it was John or Don or something similar. And of course not, because you asked so long. Like, if you'd asked them the next day, they would have a clearer memory. But I'm shocked that they even got John or Don. I know. Well, and like, they also could have remembered so much more detail about his appearance. Like, yeah, absolutely. But they decided to leave the tree because this guy is starting to creep them out significantly. They remembered seeing Lance run by them around 4.15 p.m. The girls agreed to sit with a sketch artist who produced a drawing that they all felt looked similar to the guy but wasn't exactly right. Not a great start, okay? <laughs> like, looks kind of close, but not really. Okay? Yeah, something's off here with this. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we're going to plaster this everywhere and see who looks like this guy that's probably not actually the right look. But right. okay. Like, what the fuck? Police decided to hypnotize one of the girls and have her describe the guy for a different sketch artist. Once the sketch was finished and shown to the other girls, they agreed completely that the new sketch looked exactly like the guy. So they got it right. Mm-hmm. Once they were hypnotized. Other boys and girls who'd been near the smoking tree that day agreed. So I don't know. I don't know how I feel about hypnotism, honestly. I don't buy it, but I've never been hypnotized. So I don't know if that would change my mind. I I haven't either. Like I was listening to a case where a guy was hypnotized and then ended up like confessing or whatever to to his daughter's murder. Mm -hmm. But and he didn't do it. And he died in prison. He never got out. (sighs) Yeah. I don't think that you should be able to use hypnosis to Mm -mm. get a confession. You know, I don't think it should hold up in court. No, of course not. And one of the things, though, that like, because they had the audio of it. It was a dateline I listened to. They had the audio of it. And he sounds like he's sleep talking almost. Right. Like Like dreaming. How does it work? Yeah, I don't mm -mm, don't know. Like, 
how do they really get you into that state? That's I have no- really crazy to me. I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. I the extent of it. my knowledge on it would be what I've seen on Office Space. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Apparently it works. Uh, yeah. Per Office Space. <laughs> Meanwhile, the medical examiner had determined that Lance's cause of death was exsanguination. Which means that all of the blood from his body was drained. Yes. He had several wounds across his body from a sharp object, as well as abrasions to his forehead. A rock had been found nearby with Lance's blood on it. So the medical examiner believed that the the attacker had struck Lance with a rock to disable him before attacking him with the knife. There was significant evidence that Lance had fought back against his attacker. Police returned to the nearby high school to continue their search for Johns or Dons in their records. The officer laid the new composite sketch on a nearby desk and began looking through records. The secretary saw the sketch and was shocked. She told the officer it looked very similar to a student clerk that she supervised for several years. He had learning disabilities and was very sweet. She even trusted him to house it for her and her friends. She said he had no social skills. He was constantly making up wild stories to impress classmates. The officer showed the sketch to several other staff members in the office, and everyone agreed that the sketch was a clear match for the former student clerk, John Dunkel. Hmm. When the officer brought this information back to the station, another officer mentioned that he knew the name, that he'd been trying to get in touch with him for weeks in attempts to interview him for the investigation of the John Davies case. Lance and John were very different, and their stories didn't seem to have any common factors except for John Dunkel. With the multiple identifications of the sketch of the unknown man, police began to dive further into Dunkel. Why they didn't do... I don't... Maybe they couldn't. I don't know. Joan and Jim. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So he had several arrests for DUIs and other alcohol-related crimes, including a drunk driving arrest where he'd hit a man on a moped. He drugged said moped and the man about 30 feet before speeding off. I mean, top-notch guy. Yeah. He attempted to get a friend to cover for him, but the moped driver got his license plate and he was arrested. (laughs) Yeah, bad plan, dude. Yeah, and also don't be friends with him because he'll fucking... Oh, he did it. Exactly. (laughs) (sighs) So his license was revoked, but he... And he remained on probation. And police were very interested in speaking with him about Lance's murder, but Dunkel continued to string them along. When they'd set up an appointment, he would set up a date. And he was, you know, okay, yeah, let's totally do this. Let's do a date and a time. Then he would cancel last minute. And in their continued investigation into Dunkel's life, they found that three days after Lance's murder, he moved from his parents' home in Belmont to live with his sister in Sacramento. Finally, after having been blown off multiple times by Dunkel, investigators decided to go to him. So they drive to Dunkel's house in, or his sister's house in Sacramento to meet with him. He denied ever having gone out (laughs) drinking with Mark Davies. He said that John never sat in his car to listen to music. He blamed the loss of his license on friends saying that they got him drunk and they caused him to get multiple DUIs. He denied ever having been close to the Davies family and said that he had no idea where John might be, but, oh, man, he would just, anything he could do to help, he would love to do that. Well, of course. I mean, it, he's helpful. <laughs> That's all he wants to do is just help. He's like he's like a little engine. He's very useful. Oh, sure. And he thinks he can. Yeah. 
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So they they slipped in a few questions about Lance toward the end of their visit, and Dunkel said that he had been out job hunting the day of Lance's murder. He said that he went out around 12.30 p.m., asked or, or applied for multiple jobs, and got home around 4.30 he said that his mom actually saw him come home. So they asked Dunkel if he would consent to a polygraph test. And he was like, I, gotta, I feel like I've checked with my dad first about that one. But he did agree to letting police take a Polaroid photo of him for their records. So there's unfortunately no physical evidence to tie Dunkel to Lance's murder, even though eyewitnesses identified him. All it does is prove that he was at the same place at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Police spoke with the associates at every store that Dunkel claimed he had applied to on the day of Lance's murder and also looked through their stacks of applications and nobody recognized him and they did not find any of Dunkel's applications that placed him there on that specific day. But don't worry, Dunkel has a reason for this. Of course. Yes. When police were like, hey guy, hey man, hey Hey, dude, scram. Yeah. (laughs) Get lost, man. (laughs) They were like, hey, I feel like you lied to us earlier because you, you said that you went and applied for all these jobs, but we went and checked because that's what we sometimes do. And we didn't find anything. And he's like, okay, they probably just lost him. Oh. oh Next okay. question. Yeah. Okay. He was like, I was definitely there. They did, Obviously, they lost them. Every store that I went to, every one of them mm-hmm. lost it. Yeah. So they told him that he'd been identified at being at Water Dog Lake the day that that day by multiple witnesses, as well as they had a beer can with his fingerprints on it that had been found at the smoking tree. And Dunkel was not worried about this at all. He was like, nope, I've never been to Water Dog Lake. Um, the last time I went was June and that everyone <laughs> who saw him there was lying. Okay, guy. Come on, guy. Come on, guy. Like, it's not me, okay? It's no. every single other person I've ever come into contact with and everybody else that was there. And like all these people have the same memory, but they're all mistaken. Apparently. Yeah. And my fingerprints are there. Yep. I don't see how you're not, how nobody's getting this, but exactly. I know. Like, he's like, I don't, I literally don't know any other languages. Right. 
you have to listen. So he also continued to deny that he ever hung out with John Davies and that he only occasionally hung out with Mark. Nothing rattled Dunkel. But like, it's so obviously lies. Like, Mark and the Davies' parents are like, no, he was here all the time. He practically lived here. He called us mom and dad. Like, he's like, man, I didn't really know him that well. Okay. Yeah, they're lying, clearly. So despite having these social, awkward, all that kind of stuff, Dunkel seemed to enjoy the attention that he was receiving from from police after five hours of questioning. The police didn't get anything. He just loved being there and being the center of attention, I guess. Yeah, at some point, I guess, you know, you realize like, he will keep this going as long as humanly possible just for the attention. Absolutely. So like, oh, just pull the plug. He's not going to give us anything. Yeah. So their next step was to meet with Mrs. Dunkel at her home. And through their research, they'd found that she and her husband had a history of domestic abuse. They got divorced at one point and they got remarried shortly thereafter. And Mrs. Dunkel would drop off bagged lunches to her son every day at his last job. She showed them her son's room, which was plain. I mean, there was a small twin bed and there was a Bible on the nightstand. That was it. There were no decorations. You could not tell that a 20-something-year-old 20, 20 man was living there. It was like it was an extra room that they hadn't used in 20 years. Yeah. Like, just nothing. So police showed Mrs. Dunkel the composite sketch from the suspect or of the suspect from the smoking tree. And she was like, that does not look like my little John. That does not look like him at all. Absolutely not. And she was like, no, And listen. all the people who said it did are mistaken. Exactly. They are liars. Mm-hmm. So she also was like, listen, my son is gentle. He would never hurt anybody. And she also told them that, yeah, when she, the day that he was supposed to be at Water Dog Lake, <laughs> she left work at 3.50 p.m. She gets home and she actually saw John come home at 4.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. And police left the home and they're like, why would she lie to save him? Like, what is going on here? Yeah. Like, these are just a family full of people that don't care to lie to the police. Apparently not. So they also believed that when Mrs. Dunkel saw the news of Lance's murder on television, she guessed that it possibly was her son. So she very quickly arranged for him to go live with his sister. Jeez. Mr. Dunkel was kind of a shit to police. He was super hostile towards them. He told them that they needed to leave his son alone and quit trying to pin things on him. And he said that his son didn't have a drinking problem, that he did not stay out late at night. He said that the boys he hung out with were always trying to set him up for things he didn't do. And his son did not have a violent temper. And then he told police that his son had always been a good boy. Wow. We're just living in denial. Denial is, um, it's not a, not a river in Egypt. Come on. I mean, like, your son is a shithead. And like, now we see why. All you do is make excuses for him. Everything bad that he's ever, like, kids make mistakes. Like, whatever. Fine. Mm -hmm. But you've got. They're not going to learn if you just. (laughs) Yeah, you've got. He's got multiple DUIs and you refuse to believe that he has a drinking problem. Right. Like. And everything that's ever happened, somebody else did and let him take the fall for it. It's just not even feasible. So do the right thing and hold your kid accountable. Yeah, be a parent. Yeah. So by this point, investigators have hit a wall. No matter how much they interviewed Dunkel, how or who questioned them, what kind of pressure they put on him, he wouldn't budge. He continued to tell them fantastical stories of being in the mafia and how he asked to be fired from past jobs while working for the IRS. 
It seems like he treated the police interrogations as story time. Yeah. Let me let me entertain you with a tale of... I got a good one for you today, guys. Yeah. Like, golly. made this one up on the way in. Dunkel seemed to always remain calm when in the presence of investigators and continued to enjoy their attention, appearing to even admire some of the officers. And he, you know, remember, he interacts at a much younger age than he actually is. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind as well. Feeling like they had nothing left to lose, they decided to put a young female officer into Dunkel's life as an undercover friend. In January of 1985, Dunkel met Lisa Thomas when she was hired at his job at a Rancho Cordova Carl's Jr. Dunkel was tasked with orienting Lisa to the job, which he took very seriously. Dunkel invited Lisa to a work gathering after her first day at a nearby bar. He polished off several beers and pointed to a poster on the wall that had the sketch of a suspect in Lance's murder. He told Lisa that police thought that was him, that he'd killed a kid. He added that police also suspected him in the disappearance of John Davies. Officers couldn't believe that on Lisa's first day of wearing a wire around Uncle, he'd brought up both Lance and John. Mm. I mean, he just can't stop. Like... (laughs) Lisa began hanging out with Dunkel on almost a daily basis. They'd go on bike rides, they'd go drinking, and Dunkel told her about how there were always undercover cops following him. That had to have been so hard for her to do. I mean, I know it's her job, but good grief. And also, like, it's like, yeah, but I'm undercover. Like, if you're aware of that, then why are you so trusting of me just coming into your life in this moment? Right. This doesn't make sense, but whatever. She wanted him to feel connected with her in hopes that he'd share more about what he'd done. She told him that the police had taken away her license, too. Dunkel was very excited to hear that. Yay, we're both, we both have drinking problems. Yay! Yeah, exactly. We both can't get anywhere on our own accord. Oops. (laughs) At one point, I had a guy ask me on a date who I really wanted to go on a date with. And he was like, great, you know, let's go here. Here's the day, time, whatever. He's like, catch, though. Um, You're going to have to come pick me up. And I was like... (laughs) Why? He's like, why have a DUI? I can't drive for like however many more months. And I was like, that really sucks, man. Like, I cannot imagine. I know. And I almost went on the date. And I'm pretty sure you were like, no. <laughs> like, yeah. that guy is never going to pick you up. And probably you're going to have to pay for it too. But like, I don't know. I can't imagine how like. How would you get it? Like, thank God for Uber, I guess. But that's expensive. Yeah. And like then that wasn't a thing. Like, yeah. But. No worries, because they went to a picnic in a park area, and Dunkel told Lisa as he wiped off his drink can that he always cleaned his cans now ever since police found his fingerprints on a beer can at Waterdog Lake. He's just letting it all out. I know, because he's telling the police, you're mistaken, I haven't been there since June or whatever. And then he's telling the police that he Uh has been there and that (laughs) they found his fingerprints. And now I've got to wipe off every can I touch. And like, what? okay, but why do you need to wipe them off here? Like, what do you do? What What's going to happen? Right. Like, you doing something you're not supposed to? Like, I don't know. After more than a month of hanging out, he began to v- reveal more secrets to Lisa about assaults he'd been responsible for, more drunk driving accidents he'd been in. As their relationship intensified, investigators decided to remove Lisa from Dunkel's life after he broke into a family's house and attempted to assault a child on one of their dates. <sighs> And Dunkel seemed unfazed that she decided to leave. Not long after this, Dunkel was arraigned for the home break-in and ended up being sentenced to six years in prison with the assistance of Lisa's testimony. Mm. 
This is a dangerous person. A very I mean, dangerous person. Yes. Scary. In September of night. <laughs> Why did I just say September? Like, I don't know. Okay. In September of 1986, 26-year-old Dunkel was transferred to California's men's colony in San Luis Obispo. And it was a medium security prison. Not long after arriving, Dunkel met 20-year-old prisoner Charles Rice. Rice, though younger, was a career criminal. He was aware that Dunkel was suspected of child murders, but he thought that Dunkel seemed nice enough. Never in my life. Yeah. Like, well, maybe you killed kids. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he was like, Maybe he didn't do it. I don't think he did it, but yeah. yeah. I don't know. Jeez. The two began to talk about life and difficulties they'd faced in prison, and eventually they requested cell changes and became roommates. You can do that? I did not know that you could do that, but apparently you can do that. Well, that just sounds like a sleepover, doesn't it? It sure does. Yeah. Except, you know how, like, you go to a sleepover and you're like, hey, how about we add another night? Yay! And then by the next day, you're like, oh my God, I want to go home. I don't want to be around this person anymore. So... Yep, yep, yep. Dunkel told Rice stories of how he'd been in the mafia. He worked for the FBI, and Rice was like, yeah, right, dude, it's all BS. He just knew it. So eventually, during one talk, Dunkel told Rice that he'd been, or he'd seen the man who'd murdered Lance that day, who had murdered Lance that day. Good God in heaven. Rice told him that that story was ridiculous and that if he was on his jury, he would have been convicted. So then Dunkel admits that he'd murdered Lance. For the next three weeks, Dunkel told Rice everything about the murder with no emotion in his eyes. And not long after that, Dunkel told Rice a story that took place uh, in July of 1985 in the Fair Oaks area near the bridge that connected it to Rancho Cordova. He said that while sitting at a picnic table, he saw a young boy ride by and knew that he was going to kill him. And it was Sean Donnell. But why? I just... I can't answer that question. I just don't understand. It's just... It just... Because there's no so reason fucking for it. senseless. Yeah. Is yeah. a young kid. Yeah. Like, and all he fuck? did was ride by on his bike. Yeah. And he was like, yep, that's the one I'm going to get. I mean, obviously he just wanted to kill somebody, but just, yeah, it just sucks. Yeah, it sucks. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I have to use that language. I wish you I wouldn't. don't like to say words like that. That's the yeah. S word. Yeah. Okay. But I, I get it. I mean, you're fired up. You're passionate. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So Dunkel rides off. After him, he rams him with his bike and he knocks Sean to the ground. Sean was cooperative and Dunkel led him to the woods and he was like, look, I'm not going to hurt you. But even though he said he wasn't going to hurt him, Dunkel eventually stabbed Sean to death and left his body. He also admitted to murdering John Davies and burying his body and the knife he'd used to kill him. Rice considered murdering Dunkel himself. Instead, he made the decision to talk to police and he told them that they had to hear about the murders that his cellmate had confessed to. Like... I just, first of all, don't blame Rice. Yeah. Like, you know, but with, I believe it was Sean, like, he stabbed him so many times. He stabbed him in the eyes. Mm. This was, these are brutal, brutal murders. And he was friends with John Davies. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I don't know. I'm, I mean, with Lance, he drained all of his blood. I mean, what the fuck? I know. Just... So at this point, investigators are like, oh my gosh, we hit the jackpot. Thank God. And thanks to Rice, they might could get Dunkel. He agreed to be wired and talk to Dunkel in the conference room. And Rice convinced Dunkel that he had a connection to the FBI who can make all of his problems go away. And Dunkel was like, fuck yes. Doesn't that like make this not admissible though? To lie? To say something like that? I'm not sure. Like, 
I don't know, because that could be construed as if you confess, will like a plea deal or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Even, you know, whether or not you did it, like you just need to tell us what we want to hear so we can then get the ball rolling. Right. And I mean, that's tricking him. And I mean, you know, yeah. I don't know. This was the 80s. I think that's anything went back then. I don't know. But Dunkel was like, yes, you guys can help me get rid of the evidence of the murders. So he was super eager to meet Rice's FBI friend. Dunkel drew maps of the murder scenes. He wrote papers describing the three murders in great detail with details that only the killer would know. Detectives took Rice and Dunkel out of the jail one day, traveled with Dunkel while he showed them specific areas where he'd murdered Sean and detailed where he'd stashed the murder weapons for all three. He indicated where he'd buried John's remains, which were later recovered, and he admitted that he'd taken him out that night while John was still high on LSD, and he killed him. Mm. Then back at the prison in a recorded room, Dunkel confessed to the murders of Lance, Sean, and John in detail. He waived his right for an attorney. He answered every question. He smiled at Rice and the officers throughout, sometimes giggling, saying that he just wanted to help. After multiple assessments by different doctors, the judge ultimately declared Dunkel competent to stand trial. His murder trial began on October 16th, 1989. Closing arguments began on December 6th. Within two hours of the jury leaving to deliberate, they returned with a verdict, guilty on two counts of first-degree murder for Lance and John. In early January, Dunkel's sentence was determined death, and while he was on death row, Dunkel pled guilty to the murder of Sean. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in case the death sentence was overturned for some reason. And Dunkel is still currently on death row in California. He has had several appeals filed on his behalf to appeal his death sentence. And the court questions whether he is mentally ill or not and legally can't execute someone who is mentally ill. So his series of appeals will likely last a very long time. But at least he is not on the street. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And even if it does, if even if he does appeal the death sentence, he still has life in prison, so he will never be out. Yeah, and that's where he needs to be, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let us know. Have you heard of this guy before? Yeah. Did you guys know about this case? Very interested to know. Because I'm going to be honest with you, I sure didn't. I didn't either, yeah. Don't love him. No, it's it's very sad. It is incredibly sad. And like now, I have another thing to add to my list of things to be afraid of. Everyone my kid is friends with. I think you can get a feeling, though, about people sometimes. I don't know. What if I don't? So, I, well, here's my feeling will be they're all serial killers. Oh, yeah. See, that's unless proven otherwise. I need, to, I need to go there. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Uh, yep. All right. Well, <laughs> we love you guys. Yes, we do. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. <gasps> <Bye. laughs> Disgusting. I, it flew out of my mouth without, I was powerless to stop it. Like the next time you call me, I'm just going to be like, ooh, I'm, I'm busy. I don't blame you. I cannot yeah. believe I just said that. Guys, please forgive me. I know not what I do. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. There you go. Stick around for some shout outs though. Yeah. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Okay, you guys, before we go, you know what we got to do. I do. You do? I do. It's shout out time. Yay, yay, yay. All right. So we got some Hey Girl thanks to Bree Thrift, Wendy Bland, Krista Buckner, Erica Franz, Ariel Eggers, Naomi Monroe, Amber, Chloe Cunningham, Haley Pinette, Brianna Moses, Christy Giordano Sanford, Maury Button, Sharon Birchall, Mariah Triplett, 
Jessica Ernst, Ashley Ferry, Kate Garfield, Hannah Schomber, Avery, Cariel, Victoria Nicholas, Jules Cooper, Chelsea McCaskill, Charisma Sanchez, Sammy Norris, Tiara Jones, B.C. Tucker, Mara Diaz, Christy Rigo, Rachel Danielik, Amanda Otto, Shelby Hart, Dustin Laurie, Kate Cosgrove, Amber Badu, Emily. <laughs> you don't have any time for my shit. No. Shauna Anderson, <laughs> Taylor, and Demi Suttles. Yay! Thank you Yay. guys so much. We love you. And also, as always, we're so sorry if we pronounced <laughs> your name wrong. Obviously, we don't know. Well, we know we did, but yes, we are very sorry. All right. We love you guys. We love you. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 